Sometimes change is needful. Sometimes change is desirable. But there is also something to be said for stability and dependability and predictability. I like those things, and I suppose that at least to some extent in your life, you appreciate those things as well. I want to talk about some things that never, and I do mean never, change. There's not much about our lives, about our culture, our society that doesn't change from time to time. But James says that with our Father in heaven, there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The old song says, time is filled with swift transition and not of earth unmoved can stand. Build your hopes on things eternal and hold to God's unchanging hand. I like that. Build your hopes on things eternal. And that's so very true because if you're placing your hopes and your ambitions your aspirations on the modern culture or on what the world today promises, you're going to be left very disappointed because nothing remains the same for very long. But God's hand is unchanging. And I want to tell you about some things on heaven and on earth beneath that will never change from here to eternity. Change is sometimes very frustrating to me. My wife and I sometimes find a restaurant that we like or some particular venue of some kind that we enjoy or like, but it always seems to be our lot that it's not long before it changes. We find a restaurant that we enjoy, and after a few months or a few years at best, something comes along and changes it. They change the menu, or they get some new management, and the quality of the food or the service goes down. Maybe the prices shoot up, or the establishment goes out of business altogether. Things just don't seem to stay the same for very long. You buy a new car today, and a year or two from now, it's going to seem a little bit out of date. That's just the way our transient society is. Uh, My wife told me something interesting here some months back. We usually wake up on Sunday mornings and turn on the television as we get ready, and we enjoy particularly the show CBS Sunday Morning. We enjoy the feature and human interest stories that are on that long-running program. This particular morning, I wasn't really paying much attention or watching at all, but my wife told me about a very interesting story that they had that morning about how there are experts that predict our tastes in things. They predict our tastes in colors, for example, and how that the public taste changes from year to year. Well, we know that that's the case, but the fact that they predict what colors are going to be popular by the next season or the next year is what interested me. There's actually a group of researchers who spend the year studying trends, studying the culture, studying society. That's their job. They get paid for that. And they anticipate what colors will be in vogue by the following year. And there are several environmental and societal factors that they tell us will point to what next year's favorite colors will be. And sure enough, As new products emerge the following year, the color wheel seems to spin around and everything takes on a little different look. Well, it gets very discouraging to me when you go out and you spend a lot of money on remodeling your house or something like that, only to know that in a couple of years, those paint colors and those countertops are going to seem like those old green and harvest gold appliances that were popular when I was a kid. Well, that just seems to be how things go in our world. 
And on a much more serious plane, that's the way our cultural values tend to go too. One thing about mankind that hasn't really changed over the years is that some people are always looking to be on the cutting edge of thought and philosophy. 2,000 years ago, Paul preached to the people of the city of Athens. The Bible says in Acts 17 and verse 21 that they spent their time in nothing else but to tell or to hear some new thing. And so this isn't a modern trend. The constant quest for change is about as old as man is. But despite all of that, there are some principles and values that remain the same and to which you can tether your faith. And I want to talk about some of those things today. And I want to begin by saying that God and his divine character will never change. Now, sometimes we reduce God to our own likeness. It's very hard for us to conceive of a being that transcends time, no less one who is eternal. But the Bible tells us that God is exactly that, that God is, according to Hebrews 11 and verse 6, not that he was, not that he will be, God is. That very statement points to the unchangeableness of God. Some today claim that God used to be. They tell us that the God of ancient times is different from the one that we serve today and that the God that's pictured in the scriptures is really out of date and irrelevant and perhaps even unrealistic. And as a result, they have created a new God that is more agreeable with their modern philosophy. It's easier for some people to believe in a God, for example, who used the unproven process of evolution to create the world over billions upon billions of years than it is to believe in an omnipotent God who spoke the world into being in six literal days. But I believe that God did just that. I believe in the God that is portrayed and pictured for us in his revelation within his scriptures, that he possesses all power. He's the one who said to Abraham in Genesis 17 and 1, I am the almighty God. He is the God of whom Jesus spake in Matthew 19 and 26, saying with him all things are possible. I believe in an, in an omnipresent God of whom Paul said in Acts 17 and 28 that in him we live and move and have our being. I believe in a God today that's just as omniscient, just as the Bible says of him in John 21 and 17, that he knows all things. In other words, I believe in the God of the Bible. Now, the force that we're dealing with today is humanism. And humanism seeks to exalt the creature to the level of or above the creator. It is basically the worship of self, the worship of the human being as opposed to the worship of God. And humanism is a very subtle force. Humanism is something that just sort of pervades our culture and creeps into our thinking. And if you'll notice, if you'll observe even the religious world about us today, there's a lot of lip service that's paid to honoring God and glorifying God and directing our worship and our service to God but at the same time, men are working awfully hard to tailor their worship and tailor their religion to please them in such a way that makes them feel good, in a way that makes them feel built up, in a way that they find palatable and pleasing until at some point God is just left out of the equation and he's just offered whatever man chooses to offer him. And people have basically portrayed God as a God who just smiles and goes along with everything and accepts everything, but that's not the God of the Bible. Now, to believe in the God of the Bible, to, that is to say to believe in God just exactly as the Bible tells us of him, tells us of his power, 
tells us of his history, well, that's really out of step with the thinking of our day. We've recreated God to be something he is not nor has ever been. People have made God today out to be some heavenly grandfather type who dotes on his children and who never says no. They've taken away his holiness and his righteousness, and they have turned him into a pushover who just goes with the flow. People today want a God who doesn't make any demands, a God who accepts anything and everything, and a God who doesn't have the capacity to punish sinners. Well, that's not the God that's characterized in your Bible. The Bible certainly tells us that God is love, according to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16. And that love is far beyond our ability to grasp, to comprehend. God deeply loves his creation without exception. And his compassion and his benevolence toward mankind, it is unfailing. But now the Bible tells us that there's much more to the character and the nature of God. He is also absolutely perfect. God is absolutely righteous. God is holy. And God cannot and God, God does not countenance sin. And the slightest speck of evil or unrighteousness ruins man's relationship to him. Now, thankfully, his mercy and his love provided us with the vicarious sacrifice of his own son so that we might be made righteous through him and have access to God. But that doesn't change the fact that God detests sin and that God refuses to tolerate sin. Now, the Bible tells us the Old Testament was written for our learning, according to Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. We understand that we're not accountable to the Old Testament law, to the Mosaic system. We're not accountable to keep the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial law of Moses appended to it. But nonetheless, Paul did tell us that the Old Testament was given to teach us some things. And namely, the Old Testament gives us a very clear picture of God and his attitude towards sin as opposed to righteousness. Some people charge that God was a harsh and he was a disciplinarian God back in the Old Testament, but that all of those stories, uh, but I want to say that all of those stories are written to impress upon you and to impress upon me just how God looks at evil. You know, the very death of his own son took place in part to show to mankind the awful penalty that sin exacts. Now, did you know God hasn't changed in that? Now, we live under a different law today. We live under a law that has thankfully made the provision of grace for our souls and mercy for our helpless state. And we're thankful and we praise God for that. And we could not be saved aside from that today. No man can be saved of his own strength and of his own accord. It took something that man could not do for himself in order to lift him from the mire of sin. And therefore, as Paul said in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, by grace are we saved through faith. But I want you to also understand that the character and the nature of God and the disposition of God towards sin and anything that violates his will has not changed. The God who was angered by the disobedience and rebellion of his people thousands of years ago still gets angry when men trample his law underfoot and they go splashing through the blood of his son. God hasn't changed. The only thing that has changed is that God has provided us with a solution to sin. But God's character is still the same. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 11 and verse 22, Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. Now Paul here is warning the Gentiles who had just come to know salvation in Christ not to do as the Israelites had done in their rejection of God's word. Now, it would have been a temptation 
these people, these Gentiles, were grafted in to Jesus Christ and this vine of redemption, if you please, if I can use that expression, they were grafted in simply by God's grace because God loved fallen man. And they were given the same opportunity of salvation as the Jews. That came by grace. But now one thing that the Apostle Paul continually had to counter, particularly in the Roman letter, was that there were some who would say, well, since God worked his grace despite the problem of sin, then why can't we just continue in sin so that we get more grace from God? Well, you know, that's really no different than the thinking of many people in the religious world today, even though they don't phrase it exactly that way. They just think that it's all grace and that the obedience of man is inconsequential. Oh, now it's, of course, important, they tell us, that we try our best to obey God and so forth, but it's all just about grace. And obedience really is not germane to man's actual salvation, so they tell us. Well, we hear that often today, and Paul heard that back then. And Paul says, behold, yes, the goodness of God. And there's nothing greater we can behold than the goodness of God. But Paul also says, you also behold his severity. And he goes on to say that these Jews who disobeyed him, they were cut off. And the very same consequence could befall the Gentiles if they behaved in the same way toward God. Friends, don't buy into this modern packaging of God that says that God is some benign being who is too loving to punish sin. He's the same God you read about in Genesis 1 and 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22, and frankly, that's a comforting thing to me. I'm glad to know that I can depend on the God I read about in the Bible instead of my concept of him changing from one minute to the next or being dependent on what how modern man as a whole perceives him. Man may change, his behavior, his attitude, his character all may change, but God does not. Remember James said that in him there is no variableness or shadow of turning. Now James simply tells us that he is the ruler and he is the God even of the sun and the moon. And though the sun may rise and set and the moon may hide in the shadows of the earth, God never changes. He is always exactly the same. Now, second of all, the word of God will never change. Now, one of the wonderful things about the Bible is the fact that it is old and new at the same time. In other words, it may have been written down by inspiration of the Holy Spirit thousands of years ago. It may have been written, first of all, and contextually to people of a completely different era, a completely different time, a completely different culture. But the fact of the matter is, every word of your Bible is just as timely as this morning's newspaper. And you know if men would give the Bible half a chance and a semblance of a fair hearing, they might come to see just how relevant the Bible is today. I believe that the word of God has the ability to answer every moral and spiritual question that any man can ask today. Now some people claim that we've outgrown the Bible and that all of our learning and all of our sophistication at some point along the way, we just sort of left the Bible behind. These days, it's not what the scriptures teach that we're interested in. It's what the latest Gallup poll says. Or it's what society as a whole has decided about a particular matter. We no longer allow the Bible to be the arbiter between right and wrong. And I know that because today, very few kinds of behavior are looked upon 
by not only the world, but many of our religious neighbors as being wrong or sinful. We today have justified about every kind of behavior and practice from adultery to pornography to abortion by throwing the Bible aside and doing what is right in our own eyes till we have reached the point that today few people will call sin, sin. They tell us the Bible is outdated and incapable of providing a standard for modern man to live by. Some even try to twist and bend the scriptures to allow things that anyone, listen now, just about anyone would have agreed were condemned in the Bible as little as 50 years ago. Today, it's hard to find anyone that will stand where the Bible stands and condemn those things. The Bible teaches that practices like drunkenness, and I know that's popular. I know all of the kids at school do it. I know that you see many people that go to church somewhere, some denomination every Sunday. They say it's all right to drink a little here and there, or it's all right to recreationally use some kind of a drug. I'm going to tell you the Bible condemns drunkenness. And it's just as wrong today as it was when the Apostle Paul condemned it among the heathens that had come into the church in the first century. The Bible condemns the practice of fornication. Now the world today may say it's all right for two people to move in together and live with one another outside of marriage. They might say that marriage is becoming an outdated and an unnecessary institution and that it's okay for two people to sleep together outside of marriage as long as they love each other. But I'm going to tell you it's not okay. And any type of sexual behavior outside of the bonds of marriage, a marriage that is sanctified, by the way, by the will of God, it's wrong. It's sinful in the sight of God. It's immorality. It's evil. Adultery is wrong in the sight of God. Homosexuality is an abomination in the eyes of God. And if those things were wrong when the word of God was written, they're still wrong today, regardless of what the latest popular opinion poll says, regardless of what the president says, regardless of what the Pentagon may repeal or what they might say. It's wrong in the eyes of God. Peter declared in 1 Peter 1, verses 24 and 25, that the grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And Jesus said that heaven and earth would pass away, but his word will never pass away. Matthew 24 and verse 35. The Bible is still as true and relevant as it ever was. The problem is men have rejected it. Now you stop and think about what that does to us as a society. It makes everything subjective. It says that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And when men reject the absolute and universal standard of truth known as the Bible, or any standard of truth for that matter, it creates as much chaos spiritually and morally as it would in society if we had no standards of weights and measurements, for example. You imagine trying to function as a society if we had no set standard to weigh things by or to measure things by? What if we had no official rules for language or mathematics? What if everything were left up to every individual just to determine for his or herself? Well, you know, as a society, we understand that. And though, because of the poor state of our education system and the influences that are coming to bear upon it, Despite the fact that there is a movement and there are those who do try to make everything subjective and they're all about rewarding effort instead of performance. They're all about rewarding just the effort as opposed to whether a person knows anything or not. The fact of the matter is, as a society, we still understand that somewhere there has to be a boundary. 
Somewhere there has to be a set of standards. Somewhere there has to be a set of rules by which society operates and governs itself. And we understand that without that, society would spin out of control. But then we turn around when it comes to the greatest thing of all, and that is faith in God, when it comes to the church, when it comes to religion, and we say, well, it's just every man for himself. It's what every man thinks. It's every man's opinion is just as valid as the next man's opinion. And as long as I'm sincere, it really doesn't matter what I believe or what I engage in, what I practice religiously. Well, surely we can see the confusion and the chaos that's resulted from that. Well, why is it that, when, that we refuse to accept an absolute and unchanging standard when it comes to right and wrong? Or when it comes to ethical, moral, and religious issues? Friends, that's why the world's in the shape that it's in. And furthermore, why religion's in the mess that it is in today. It has become a free-for-all simply because we have rejected the Bible as the one source of absolute truth. And I've hit on this in one way or another already during this meeting, but I'm going to take one more swipe at it. I'm going to tell you it is the battle of our times in the church of the Lord today. And we've got some folks that claim to be out there seeking for truth and looking for truth. And let me tell you, they're asking a lot more questions than they are finding answers. Now, I'm all for asking honest and sincere questions. And I am certainly not proposing that anybody accept anything at face value and just simply because Grandma and Grandpa said it was that way. We should all have a sincere desire to know the truth. And let me tell you what we're seeing amongst certain circles today. We are seeing people whose objective is not to find answers. Their objective is to ask questions so as to muddy the waters. And what they're after is ultimately a, a system of open fellowship where anything and everything goes and everything and everyone and every practice and every belief is tolerated. That's where it's headed. That's the objective. And that's what happens when you minimize the word of God as being a standard of authority and a pattern for the work and the worship of the church. It becomes a free-for-all. Now the word of God is unchanging and it remains today despite the thousands of years that have passed since it was written and it warns us that one day our lives are going to be judged by what appears on its sacred pages and that standard is unchanging. Now I again for one am glad that I have a Bible to turn to today and I'm glad that my spiritual and moral views don't have to be constantly reshaped because of the fact the world changes from one day and one year to the next. The word of God is an unchanging thing that you can tether your soul to in these changing, confusing, and perilous times. Thirdly, let me say the Lord's church is an unchanging institution. It's an ancient institution. We read of its beginning in Acts the second chapter and the events of that chapter took place on a Sunday morning in Jerusalem about 1980 years ago. And did you know that what that in the eyes of God, that institution that started way back there so long ago has not changed. Now the Bible tells us that we have received a kingdom that cannot be moved according to Hebrews 12 and verse 28. Jesus taught us that the unchanging word of God is the seed of that kingdom. In other words, it is constantly being reproduced in its original form every time the gospel of the New Testament is preached and obeyed. And there is something that is thrilling to me about that. 
There is something that is absolutely thrilling to me about that wonderful fact. It is an awesome thing for me to turn over to the book of Acts and read about the church that Jesus established two millennium ago and to know that I'm a member today of that same institution. I remind myself, and it humbles me each time I do, when I come together with other Christians on the Lord's Day to break bread like we did just a little while ago, to know that I am keeping a God-ordained tradition that was established two millennia ago and that has taken place every Sunday, somewhere, someplace, in that way, since that time. Now, you know, a lot of people, they just get a big thrill out of observing some kind of a worldly tradition. They like to recreate history. There are people that their favorite thing to do in the world, they wouldn't give you a nickel for football or anything they see on television. Their entertainment and their recreation is not traveling and seeing the sights of the country. You know what they do and what they spend their spare time on? They like to go and, for example, reenact the Revolutionary War. Or they reenact the Civil War. And that's a thrill for them to get all dressed up in costume and to try to recreate the scene of what it must have been 150, 200 and some years ago and to go back in time and to recreate what it must have been to be in the battle as the nation fought for its independence or as the nation fought one side against the other. They like to step back in time. And there's something about us that we all like to step back in time once in a while and just sort of feel like we've been transported back in time. We're there. What was it like back then? Well, let me tell you, every law Thursday, every Christian can step back in time. Because when you gather around this table and you observe it in the way we observed it today, you can tell you don't take my word for it, take out your Bible. Read the accounts that the Holy, the four accounts the Holy Spirit gave us of the very night that Jesus established it with his disciples in the upper room. We are doing exactly what was done then and what has been done somewhere, someplace, in the same way, every Seventh day, every first day of the week, every Sunday since that time. That's thrilling to me. And do you know today you could be a member of the same church that you read about within the Bible? The Bible says that the word of God is the seed of the kingdom. And I believe that by using the Bible and using the scriptures as our guide, we can know exactly what the church that Jesus established was, who they were, what they preached, how they lived, how they worshiped, and I can at every point follow that example. The problem today is too many people are ignoring the pattern. And they tell us that the church needs to evolve and stay up with the times. And as a result, we have more churches and denominations than you can count. And one's as different as, as the next, as daylight, uh, different from the next, I should say, as daylight from dark. And that's because people aren't looking to the early church as a paradigm. They view the church as an entity that changes along with man. Now here's the thing about change. When you go tampering with things divine or just changing things merely for the sake of changing and keeping up with the times, when that's simply your motive, I'm going to tell you it's not very long times it's going to change again. And whatever you change to... Well, that's going to be old hat. There's a little debate going on on the internet, a little group that I was invited into some time back that I'm actually not too fond of, but I've been just with interest following it. 
And lately, these are some disgruntled church members, I might say, they've been arguing and debating about the, the changing, the name that the church wears, the description that is given of the Lord's church. Well, that's a study within and of itself. And um, I do understand that the, as we refer to ourselves and as the Bible refers to God's people as churches of Christ, that that's more of a description than it is a proper name. I understand that. But I also understand that God promised that he would give his people, the new Israel in this day, a new name, and that name would be that of his son. And I believe the name that we wear is a name that we ought to be proud of because it is the name that reflects who our leader is, who our king is, who the head of the church is, who shed his blood for the church. And it's a scriptural designation to refer to the church as the church of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, the church of God. If God is referring to God the Son, God Jesus Christ. But now their idea is that in order to evangelize the world, we've got to leave behind the trappings of the past and embrace something that's new and cutting edge. And they think by doing that, they're going to further disassociate the church with any type of a denominational concept. No. Now you can just go out and be as creative as you want to, and you just come up with you some catchy doodle little name. And you stick it on the sign up in front of your church building and stick it on your website and whatever it might be, you know what? You just come up with a new name. And people in the course of time are going to look at that name just like unfortunately some people who are unlearned of the Bible are going to look at the name Church of Christ or any other name that the church wears. Changing the name doesn't change anything. Changing the name doesn't change people's perception. They're changing to keep up with the times. And the thing about change is, when it comes to the Lord's church, change begets change. No one's ever satisfied. Well, that's what happens when you ignore the idea that there's a pattern given to us within the Bible. And too many people are ignoring the pattern that is given to us. The church that Jesus established is unchanging. Governments change. Nations rise and fall. Societies crumble. There's one institution in the world you can count on to be the same, and that's the church. And I ask, are you a member of the church that you read about in the Bible? Or are you part of a religious organization that gets its doctrine from whatever the thinking of the day happens to be? Now finally, I want to say that the Lord's promises are unchanging in an unstable and uncertain world. The Lord's promises are unchanging. The Lord keeps his word. The Lord keeps his vow. And you can bank on that. God is never failing when it comes to keeping his word. God never forgets a promise. God never reneges on a promise. 2,000 years ago, our Lord left this old world. And he gathered with his small band of disciples on all his brow. And with the clouds as his chariot and the winds as his steeds, he went riding off to glory. But he left with a precious promise. He told his confused, bewildered, and heartbroken disciples he left behind in John 14 and 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, friends, I believe that. I believe that one of these days the Lord is coming again. 
I know that there are plenty of folks who make fun of that. They're proving the Bible to be true right now by scoffing at and mocking the promise of our Lord. Peter said in 2 Peter 3 that in the last days there would be those who would scoff and say, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. In other words, you know, if he were really coming again, he would have been here by now. But Peter goes on to say, a thousand years is like one day with the Lord and his promise remains. And like a thief in the night, he'll come back one day. Folks, I don't know what the future holds in this old world. I do know that we're living in some very, very uncertain and in many ways, some very frightening times. The world has been through a lot of changes down through the centuries, through the millennium. And I don't necessarily believe the world is more sinful than it ever was. I just believe sin is a little more publicized today than it ever was. We hear about it a lot more. The world has become so small because of technology. And we're bombarded through technology with everything that goes on in every corner of the world. And we're bombarded with it instantly. And so it's easy to have the perception that the world is becoming a very sinful place when really sin has always been a problem with man and there really isn't a new sin under the sun. But I will say that we're living in a very unstable day. We're living in a time when it seems the world is very fragile. And we're living in an age where it's very frightening, for example, to bring children and grandchildren into the world and to wonder what kind of country they're going to grow up in what kind of society and culture they're going to face and their children are going to face. We turn on the news and it seems like we're not even hardly shocked anymore at the latest headline because every day our world changes and something even more outrageous captivates the headlines. And what another day holds is anyone's guess. Now if you let yourself think about that, if you let yourself dwell on that, you can get yourself awfully worked up and you can do it real quick. You can just delve deep into the depths of depression if you think about it enough. You can keep yourself up at night and worry yourself sick over what's going to happen tomorrow or next year or next decade or in the next generation. Let me tell you one thing I know. One thing I do know and I'm banking on it, is that one of these days, our Lord's going to come back and he's going to end it all. One of these hours, the eastern sky is going to split wide open, and just as he promised, an angel is going to place one foot upon the land and one foot upon the sea and declare there will be no more time. I'm certain about that. And I'm also certain that if you're not making ready for it, you're making a very foolish mistake. The Lord's promises stand sure. Build your hopes, the song says, on things eternal and hold to God's unchanging hand. His immutable promise is an unchanging thing in an ever-changing world. Will you trust God today with your life and with your future? Will you have enough faith and trust in his promises and in his word that you would come and obey him today and live for him? I can promise you He'll keep his word. He'll keep his word. When he promised in the dawning of time that he would one day send a Messiah to take away the sins of the world, 
He kept that promise thousands of years later. He sent the Lamb of God into this world to take away the sin of man. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.